Well, it's good to see all of you. Good morning and happy Sabbath. Um, I have personally been away from you all and my family for the last week. Uh, we were up at Avondale. They, the union and the division put on this um, uh, this creation and science conference. And so for about four days, they kind of went through different um, arguments through biology and cosmology and philosophy and kind of sharing with some of us uh, chaplains and teachers and pastors um, how to build faith in, uh, in, in, in our congregations and in our classes. Um, and so it was a, it was a very information-rich um, week. Um, Interestingly enough, that's not what I'm going to be presenting upon <laughs> today, uh, but we're going to be talking about what does God think when we pray. And so why don't I just log on to the computer and we will begin. <clears throat> so I was reading through a few uh, newspaper articles, and uh, there are a few, few uh, headlines that really caught my eye, and that kind of led me on this journey of like clicking through different uh, newspaper articles that were uh, related to the same topic. But uh, I found it very interesting to find that over the last decade, there's this interesting phenomena of atheists who are practicing spiritual disciplines. So atheists who are practicing spiritual disciplines. Uh, the Sydney Morning Herald had an article called, Times Are Troubled When Atheists Turn to Prayer. And this article highlights a trend in the atheist community where people who do not believe in God are praying. There were a lot of other interesting uh, explanations as to why this might be. But um, anyway, that little bit caught my eye, and that led me to another article uh, by the Washington Post. And it had a similar article entitled, Some Nonbelievers Still Find Solace in Prayer. And uh, this article published the results of a survey that was put together by Pew Research, um, which surveyed individuals who identified themselves as atheists. And here are a few stats uh, for you. Studies to different people. I, I often ask them about what it's like for them to pray. And I find consistently people say, I pray for my family. I pray for the major issues and crisis in my life. But I find it difficult to pray for the everyday things. So I find it difficult to pray for guidance, for direction, for help with the daily struggles. And I think, I think it's um, normal to get to the place where we pray and when we don't expect an answer. And here's why. I think the reality is that prayer is difficult. See, we can pray for our favorite sports team to win and God will answer that prayer. And we can pray for that brand new born baby who's sick uh, without positive results. And so that leaves us in a place where we're not sure what to pray for and what to expect. And it just becomes easier not to pray. And if I'm honest, I don't have a clear-cut answer for you this morning. But I do think that the Bible gives us an idea of what, what God thinks when we pray. And I find it helpful that even if I don't know what the outcome of my prayer is going to be, it's helpful to know what God thinks when I pray that prayer. So today I want to invite you to turn, I would like to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. Mark is a second book in the New Testament. Goes Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. So Mark chapter 2 and we're going to read verses 1 to 12. For those of you who have the World Changer Bibles, it's page 802.
Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and I'm going to narrate the story. <clears throat> I invite you to read along as I narrate. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, it tells an account of a group of friends that approach Jesus with a need. And I find it useful to see how Jesus responds when he is approached for help. We find Jesus in a house full of people, and as he's teaching, four friends gather their paralyzed friend and try to reach Jesus. The story says, due to the crowd, they're unable to make it through the doorway, and so they climb up to the top of the house, and they remove the roof. And I could try to picture what it's like to remove a roof of a house, but I imagine there's some architectural differences between today and back in Jesus' time. But if you read the text, the text says that they removed or they uncovered the roof. And so um, that implies that it wasn't uh, too difficult of a task. And as they uncover the roof, they lower their paralyzed friend to Jesus. The four individuals have a friend who can't walk, and obviously Jesus has the power of healing. So when they lower their friend in front of Jesus, the request seems pretty clear. But I'd like to bring your attention to verse 5. Notice how Jesus responds to this unspoken request. Verse 5, the text says, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now, the friends were asking Jesus to restore this man's ability to walk. And Jesus instead forgives this man's sin. I don't know how I would, well, excuse me, I do know how I'd, I would respond to this situation. Um, I would want physical healing, right? It's like, hey, I can't walk. Like, kind of look at my legs and, you know, like puppy, die, puppy dog eyes, kind of like, hey, Jesus, can you help me out? And if he were to say, your sins are forgiven you, I'd be like, yeah, and? Like anything else? And I don't know if any of you have ever received a gift that you didn't want, um, but this used to happen to me a lot as a child, where I would go to my dad and I would ask him, hey, can I get a stereo for Christmas because I would like to listen to music? And instead, he would get me a desk so I'd be more motivated to study. And Christmas Day would come along and I'm like, thanks. <laughs> and when, when I think of what it's like to be in this man's shoes, I'd be thinking almost the exact same thing. Like, okay, great. You're forgiving my sins. But, so my question is, why does Jesus do this? And I think there are a couple observations that can be made from this uh, interaction. And the first one is this. Each time we come to God with our prayers and desires for physical fulfillment, God wants to bring our attention to our spiritual need. Now, I'm not saying that to think spiritual is enough, and that's all God wants to give. It's like, I bless you, my child. Now go in peace. It's like, but I'm still hungry, or I still can't walk, or I'm still blind. It's not enough to want the spiritual. But what I'm saying is, Jesus wants this man to see his paralysis through the lens of the promise of forgiveness. In other words, the paralytic receiving forgiveness would allow him to receive the physical healing differently. So when the spiritual is ministered to, it puts the physical need in the right context. See, we are led by our physical desires. We're motivated by them. And those desires, they're not bad, but how we pursue and fulfill our desires matter to God. There's a verse here, Psalm 37, verse 4, 
Psalm chapter 37, verses 4 to 6. And what I want to bring your attention to is that there's this Hebrew literary feature that's used when, um, when, when David writes this psalm. Uh, basically, it's called parallelism. And so two similar ideas are paralleled, but different words and different concepts are used. And it just expands the main idea that's being shared. And so you're going to see different words and concepts used, but the idea is just it's repeating itself. So here's how the text says, or here's how the text goes. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. And so there's this idea, there's this connection between us realizing our desires, our goals, our passions, our purpose, which is connected to this idea of committing ourselves and delighting ourselves in God. And the result of that is verse 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. See, God asks us to prioritize him, to delight in him, to enjoy him, to trust him, to commit to him. This prioritization then informs and directs our goals, our desires, our passions. And notice, God isn't saying, put me first and I want and want the things that I want. He's not saying put me first and want the things that I want. He's saying put me first and I will give you the things that you want. And the result is righteousness. See, prioritizing God, living out our dreams, and the development of righteousness are all interconnected. In contrast, when we are at the center of our goals and dreams, we do not find delight in God. We do not find our heart's desire. The existential crisis or void is not filled. We are not able to develop righteousness. If you go back to Mark chapter 2, notice verse 10. Mark chapter 2, verse 10. The paralytic received forgiveness. Then he receives the ability to walk. See, the physical healing let him and those who are around him know what God could do. But the spiritual healing told people what God was like. See, how we pursue our human desires communicate truth about God to those around us. Jesus considers the community around us when we ask him for things. You know, oftentimes in the story of Jesus throughout the Gospels, the physical healing and the spiritual healing are separate. Here are a couple examples. John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25 says here now when he was in jerusalem at the passover during the feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs he did but jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man now look at this middle verse here it says or excuse me the middle of verse 23 many believed in his name now isn't that what jesus came to earth to do to get people to believe in him. But notice here, they believe on him because of the miracles that they saw, and Jesus does not commit himself to them. He's almost like, yeah, I, I'm actually okay. You don't have to follow me. And that's such an interesting thing to me. Something very similar. Mark chapter 5, verses 39 to 43. It's a story of Jesus healing the girl um, that, uh, that dies, Jairus' daughter. And uh, at the end of the story, it says, when he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. 
But when he had put them all outside, he took the father, the mother of the child, and those that were with him and entered to where the child was lying. So notice, he kicks out everybody who doesn't believe. And then he goes and performs a miracle. But notice what happens afterwards. He commands them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. So after he raises someone from the dead, Jesus says, it's okay, you don't have to witness for me. You don't have to proclaim anything. And he distances himself from those who separate physical healing and spiritual healing. Our physical desires serve as a reminder of our spiritual needs. So when we connect with God and seek him for who he is, we are able to then properly see what God is doing. You know, it's easy to witness a miracle. It's completely different to understand the mindset and the heart of the person behind the miracle. See, oftentimes, our physical desires keep our attention and our spiritual, our spiritual needs are left unattended. And this keeps us from seeing what God is actually doing. It becomes easier to say prayer does not work. It becomes natural for us to become unavailable to God. See, prayer requires a connection to God. Prayer is not effective when it's rushed. Prayer is not effective when selfishness motivates the subject matter of the prayer. Prayer takes time and trust. There's a a lengthy passage from this book called Education. It's uh, taken from page 260 and 261. I'm just going to read through the whole page because it's just, it's really good. So here's how it goes. Many, even in their seasons of devotion, fail of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. They are in too great haste. With hurried steps, they press through the circle of Christ's loving presence, pausing perhaps for a moment within the sacred precincts, but not waiting for counsel. They have no time to remain with the divine teacher. With their burdens, they return to their work. These workers can never attain the highest success until they learn the secret of strength. They must give themselves time to think, to pray, to wait upon God for a renewal of physical, mental, and spiritual power. They need the uplifting influence of his spirit. Receiving this, they will be quickened by, flesh, uh, by fresh life. The wearied frame and tired brain will be refreshed. The burdened heart will be lightened. Not a pause for a moment in his presence, but personal contact with Christ. To sit down in companionship with him. This is our need. Happy will it be for the children of our homes and the students of our schools when parents and teachers shall learn in their own lives the precious experience pictured in these words from the Song of Songs. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. I read a story of how someone cultivated a mindset to prayer. Uh, this individual was challenged by his friend to practice uh, gratitude for 30 days. And so the challenge kind of went like this. Every single day, take time in prayer just to list things that you're thankful for, uh, specific things. And so for 30 days, as he practiced gratitude day after day after day, this individual found himself wanting less 
and interceding more. He felt God speaking to him about um, how he could serve those around him, and he, he kind of describes this very close connection with God. And I, I find even in Scripture there's this uh, consistent principle that gratitude and prayer does something incredibly powerful. See, the logic of selfishness, it requires you to be discontent with what you have and pay attention to all the things you don't have. The logic of thankfulness and gratitude requires you to focus on what you have already received and to be overcome with thanks. Gratitude is the opposite of greed. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 says, But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, uh, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And there's kind of like this long list of uh, very selfish behaviors. And the whole point is, how do you reverse this insatiable desire for selfishness? Because when you see each of those things, greed can never be satisfied. Lust can never be satisfied. So how do you reverse that negative cycle of self-focusedness? I think I just made up a word. And the answer is practice gratitude, practice thanksgiving, because it causes you not to focus on that which you don't have. It causes you, it causes you to be thankful for that which you do have. And so as you practice gratitude, that is the solution for insatiable uh, what selfishness. So Jinha and I are going to be taking on um, a 30-day challenge of gratitude. And uh, we want to extend that invitation to you. This isn't like a high accountability type of thing. Basically, if you're like, yeah, I'm actually interested to see what it would be like to practice gratitude for 30 days, um, just let myself or Jinha know. We're going to put together a WhatsApp group, and we're just going to message out Bible texts that uh, have to do with gratitude or thanksgiving. And so as you read those verses, it can give you some subject matter to pray about um, through that 30-day period. And so if you're interested, we invite you to join us. I think there's something powerful that can happen as we enter into that place of prayer and as we live our lives from the perspective of God and service to others, that something incredibly powerful um, happens in our lives. You know, There are verses in John chapter 15, uh, verse 7, where Jesus says, Ask whatever it is in my name, I'll give it to you. Right? Practicing selflessness is not about... Um, it's not about becoming like this uh, monk uh, who loses all desire for anything. God is just saying, I want you to learn to trust me, and then I can trust you. I'll give you whatever you ask for because I know you're going to be responsible with that which I give you. And so, you know, a lot of times people from the front preach, you know, God is not going to answer your prayer for that Ferrari. But maybe he would if you knew that you would donate that Ferrari to charity, right? So I, I'm just saying that there's this concept in the Bible where God is saying, you give your life to me, and I will give my life to you. May you be blessed as you practice uh, this connection uh, with God in Prince Pray. Father God, we come before you this, um, this afternoon, and we just pray that you would draw near to us as we call out to you, that in our seeking, in our searching, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would cause us to pray through your eyes, through your heart, that we would... Um, experience and encounter your power, your grace, and your mercy. Uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen.